Seventh-day Adventist Church Sabbath program in progress. If you would like a copy of our program today, you can write to us at 1720 North J Street, Las Vegas, Nevada, 89106, and receive a copy, or you can call us at 702-647-2627. Those of you that would like to tune in on the internet, you can tune in to www.abundantlifelv.org and see our programs as well. You are in for a treat today, radio listeners, as well as the audience here at the Abundant Life Church. Our speaker today is a very prominent musician, songster, recording artist, director. I have a whole list of things that I could read. But the Lord has impressed me to let you know that in his music, he, combi he combines a rare musical artistry with a spiritual sensitivity seldom encountered. He has toured the United States, Europe, the former Soviet Union, and for 10 years he was director of a group, director and arranger of a group called the Walter Ortiz Carell. Our speaker today is Elder Walter Ortiz. While directing a public affairs television program in Glendale, California, Elder Ortiz was inspired to develop the Breath of Life telecast. This program is presently aired in the West Indies and thousands of people have been baptized through the Breath of Life Crusades. Presently now, Elder Charles D. Brooks is the current director and speaker. Pardon me, is the, uh, the current director and speaker at this time is now Walter L. Pearson, Jr. How many of you have seen Elder Pearson on the Breath of Life program? Our speaker today, Elder Walter Ortiz, is an ordained minister in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. He is listed in Who's Who Among Black Americans. He counts it a privilege to serve the Lord, which is very important, and gives praise to him for the talents of which he has been entrusted. Following 31 years of service to the church, Pastor Artis retired in 2005 while serving as manager treasurer for the Voice of Prophecy International Broadcast. After another sacred selection by our children, the next voice you will hear will be that of Elder Walter Artis. Hear ye him.
Amen again. Wasn't that beautiful? There is a saying amongst us that when you take a child by the hand, you take a parent by the heart. As I sat here listening to them and looking out at you, I could see that that was true. So many of you were smiling and enjoying the music. And we thank the Lord for these young people. I am honored to be back with you again today. This is high worship, beloved. If you have not had the occasion to worship as we are worshiping here today, this is high worship. Every facet of this service has been aimed at somebody. The prayers, the music, even the announcements. I thought it was wonderful, and it is good to be back with you again. The songwriter has said to us safely through another week, God has brought us on our way. Let us now a blessing seek waiting in his courts today. What do you say? When I talked with your pastor about coming today, he reminded me that this is Black History Month. And he wanted to make sure that we said something germane to that. This experience that we now enjoy as a people has been a long time coming, beloved. And I think it is a good thing that we come aside every year now to remember this experience. It is very important for us to share this experience with our young people. The history of not only our experience here in North America, but the history of this church. And they need to know the story. And so I'm grateful for the story that was shared with the young people today with doc, on, on Dr. Carson, our young people need to hear that. Yeah. Methinks there were some little Dr. Carsons down there listening. Yeah. And that was a good thing. We have a marvelous, marvelous history. As I listened to the young people's story, it occurred to me I have lived a long time. I say that because I went to the first grade in Greenville, Mississippi, Pastor. And back in those days, it was so tough, we called it Mississippi. I can remember the experience. I can remember the signs. I can remember when there were places that we were not allowed to eat or where we were not allowed to eat or to use the rest facilities, or even take a drink from a water fountain. I remember that. I can remember if I wanted a serious whipping from my father, all I had to do was stay out after dark. <laughs> because you see, back in those days, as people would make their way home, there was, there was no radio, certainly no television. And after working all day long in the fields or what have you, the people would sit together on a porch and sip lemonade and tell stories. And we kids would sit on the ground and listen to these people talk and tell us about our history. 
Then at about dusk, you began to make your way home. But if you waited too long, the night riders would come through <laughs> and people would literally disappear. John would start home one night, you'd never see him again. I remember Greenville being in the northwest corner of the state. And Mississippi was a part of the South Central Conference, which meant that the conference office was over in Tennessee. Now, in order to get to Tennessee, we had to drive across the state of Mississippi into Tennessee just to get to the conference office. And I remember my father would call ahead and tell another Adventist pastor or family that we were coming through so we could stop and eat and refresh ourselves. I remember. I remember he would not go to workers meeting without his family. He would load us all up in the car and we all made the trip together. Some years later, I made my way to New York City with him, of course. He, he was pastoring in Bridgeport, Connecticut, and New York and the surrounding areas. And I heard him say one evening, we've got to get Walter out of the city. Dangerous. And so he sent me away to one of our schools, Pine Forge Academy over in Pennsylvania. Best thing he could have done for me. I don't know how my parents managed to do it because I had an older sister who was at Oakwood and now I was at Pine Forge. How do you pay for all of that? God is faithful concerning his promises. Amen. We are so blessed. You are blessed. I don't know, I'm sure some of you do, but I don't know if you realize how blessed you are to have the pastor here that you have and the rich heritage that he has brought to this church, he and members of his family. When I was just a little fella running around Oakwood's campus, I met his father-in-law, Elder Frank L. Peterson. This is Black History Month, so y'all have to bear with me. He was the president of Oakwood at the time, and Elder Peterson had so much statue until you knew when he was on the campus. You didn't have to see him, but you could tell when he was around. The students just carried themselves a certain way. There were things that you simply would not even think of doing if you knew Elder Peterson was around. What a great spiritual leader he was. The students loved to pepper him with questions. And on one occasion, they were doing that, and one of them said to him, Elder Peterson, if you were not a Seventh-day Adventist, what would you be? And he shot right back, I'd be ashamed of myself. <laughs> Wonderful to be a part of this church and the educational system that God has given to this church. I lived on 151st Street. I'm jumping around because we've got a lot to do here. Later on in New York City on 151st Street and around the corner on 150th Street, 
was the headquarters for the Northeastern Conference and right next door to the conference office, the City Tabernacle Church. And the pastor of that church at the time was Elder C.E. Bradford. And as a teenager, on Wednesday night, sometimes on Friday night, I would go around the corner and listen to him preach. And nobody preaches like Elder Bradford. I'm trying to show you how, young people, God has a plan and purpose for every life. Because here I was, a young teenager growing up in New York City, listening to Elder Bradford from time to time. And then, some 23 years later, I found myself in the organized work at the Adventist Media Center, serving on the board of trustees there. And in walks Elder C.E. Bradford. This was the beginning of Breath of Life. We were trying to get appropriations and trying to get the program on the air and trying to do our work and I had made a presentation to the board and explaining to them what we're trying to do in getting into these large cities where our people were polarized and saying to the board we need to reach them through television. And while they were receptive, they also felt there wasn't money to do it. And Elder Bradford raised his hand. He told the board that Ethel, his wife, had him working all week long because a new grandbaby was coming. And she had him cleaning the baseboards and mopping the floors and shampooing the rugs and doing all kind of work. The baby's coming. And he, be, he used that as a kind of metaphor. And he began to tell the brethren, breath of life is a baby. Brethren, he said, we need to give the baby some milk. His exact words. Well, they went back and readjusted the financial statement and we got the funds that we needed. In those days, you didn't have superstations like CEN and some of these other large channels where you can be seen literally throughout the whole nation. So we would go on one station at a time and then go in and do the work of evangelism and on several occasions plant a new church when the crusade was over. And so we were doing this work, and Elder C.D. Brooks was the speaker director, but he was also a general field secretary for the General Conference. Two portfolios, so he was very busy. And it came time for us to go to St. Louis, Missouri to hold a campaign, only to discover that the days that we could get the auditorium were not the days that would coincide with the schedule that Elder Brooks had. So who is going to run this meeting? Elder C.E. Bradford. And we went to St. Louis, and I will never forget it, because his subject on the opening night was close encounters of the third kind. You may remember that as a motion picture, but for Elder Bradford on that occasion, it was simply the second coming of Christ. And he used that subject to arrest the attention of everyone there. 
Now during the day, we had to get out and knock on doors, visit people, do Bible work. Pastor and I were talking about that this morning. And I was going about my work one day and I knocked on a door and the dear lady's name was Sister Mildred Johnson. She had written to us in California. She was enrolled in the Bible course and now she was coming to the meetings, but she had a number of questions in her mind. And so we visited with her, and we talked with her, and we prayed with her, and we came down to the decision period, but Sister Johnson still had not made up her mind. And in workers' meeting one day, Elder Bradford said, if you're having problems bringing some of these individuals across the line, perhaps I can go with you and we can visit together. Imagine that. A man in the general conference taking the time to walk the streets of St. Louis and do Bible work. But he led by example, and I never forgot it. I took him with me to see Sister Johnson, and he listened to all of her wonderful stories, and after she had talked about a half an hour, he said, now, Sister Johnson, you got to make up your mind. He said, Pastor Artis has been here to see you several times. My sister, you must decide. And she said, okay. Got up and went and got her little spiritual bundle, and she was baptized the next Sabbath. Now, the story doesn't end there. Her daughter had a daughter who was about to be married. And on Sabbath, Sister Johnson wanted to attend the wedding. And so I said to her, if you will come to church on this particular Sabbath, when the service is over, I will drive you outside St. Louis to the church where the wedding is going to take place. It was about 60 or 70 miles away, but we wanted her there for church, and she came. And after church, I drove her outside St. Louis to this wedding. And the daughter, who was a member of the Jehovah Witness Church at the time, decided she had to meet these people who would take the time to drive her aged mother all the way outside of St. Louis to a wedding. Long story short, the daughter was baptized. And as I thought about that, I said to myself, when I was running around New York City, 12, 13 years of old, listening to Elder Bradford preach. God saw that then. He knew way back there, young people, that he had a plan and a purpose and something he wanted us to do. So we give him all the praise and all the glory. Amen. He is faithful concerning his promises to us. What do you say? Amen. Be faithful, young people. He has a plan and a purpose for your life. I'm delighted to see the book that the pastors are distributing to you today. It tells you a marvelous story about the history of this church, some of its pioneers. Read it. Digest it. Learn it. There's something there for you. Let's bow our heads together, shall we? Father, this is your time and we are your people. And now in the next few moments that will follow, we pray that you will get glory to yourself through our time together. Move from heart to heart. 
and we will be careful to praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. my 
só a little book at home in my study. You might have it. If not, I think you should get it. It's called Bible Readings for the Home. How many of you have that book? On page 488 of this wonderful little book, we find the question that will serve as a title for our time together. The question there is, what is man? What is man? Genesis 2, 7, and the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Our Bible commentary says of this verse that we are allowed to peer, as it were, into the workshop of God as he does the mysterious work of creation when the lifeless form of man was infused with his divine breath. And it was then that man became a living soul. Before that, he's just dust, material, elements taken from the ground, oxygen, carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen, just dust. So man was made of the dust of the ground, and also in Ecclesiastes 12:7, he shall return to the earth from whence he was taken. We know at death the spirit goes back to the great author of life. Having come from him, it returns to him. You see, dear ones, it belongs to God, and man can have it eternally only as a gift through Jesus Christ. Take your Bibles again, if you will, and turn over to Hebrews 2. Hebrews, the second chapter. And we want to look at a portion of what Pastor read for us today. Hebrews 2, verses 6 through 7 this time. And in the middle of the sixth verse, the Bible says, What is man that thou art mindful of him? Or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with glory and honor and didst set him over the works of thy hands. And so our scripture today asks, What is man? that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that you would visit him. How is it that you, the great God of the universe, is concerned about man? After all, he's just dust. Hebrews 9, 28. Hebrews the ninth chapter and verse 28. Look with me at what the Bible says. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. And unto him that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. To bear the sins of many, dear ones, refers here to Isaiah 53, 
and verse 12. You see, Isaiah was a significant source of inspiration for early Christians. And we are told through historians that when Handel closed himself off in his studio to write that marvelous oratorio that we enjoy every Christmas, Handel's Messiah, he read extensively from the book of Isaiah. And so we can deduce from this, in his first coming, Christ dealt with sin once and for all. And in his second coming, he will take redeemed sinners to himself in the consummation of salvation. And so we know, dear ones, that man is a complex being. The physician peers into his body and he marvels at his organs and his working mechanisms. The psychiatrist seeks to understand his emotions and to follow the very path his feelings travel. The psalmist lifts up his soul in wonder why an infinite God would be concerned about finite man. And he cries, when I look at thy heavens and the works of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou established, what is mere man that thou art concerned about him? Psalms 8, 3, and 4. And the Bible, dear ones, the Bible answers this question for us. For the first time we lay our eyes on the creature called man is in the Garden of Eden. And here we are given a picture of man as God made him. The Bible declares that God and man were friends. They were in tune with each other. The channel of communication was wide open. And the writer to the Hebrews says he was made a little lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor, and he sat over the works of God. So it was a relationship of dignity, a relationship of peace, it was one of love and companionship. The creator and man were going to build a wonderful world together. It would be a world in which there would be no suffering, no hate, no bigotry, no pain, greed or lust or selfishness of any kind. It was to be a beautiful world, a world in which man could walk in divine fellowship with God himself. And so Adam knew true freedom. God had given him the gift of free will. He had given to him the gift of free choice. And so our first parents were free to obey God or to disobey God as they eventually chose to do. They were not created without choice, free choice of their own. The Bible says man was created in the very image of God. He was given a godlike intellect to think high and lofty thoughts about God. You see, he had an emotion. His heart could go out in search of love and fellowship. And then he had a will like God. That is to say, in the center of his being, he could will and say to himself, I will follow you. I will obey you. And so our first parents, beloved, had a special relationship with God, and thus man knew what life was all about. You see, God has given to man so much more than he has placed in the animal kingdom. Animals have instinct. 
That is to say, they have an innate adaptive behavior. They are impelled from within. But God has given to us what the men of science call tropism. Tropism. That is to say that he can think. He can reason. And thus he is able to decide to move away from external stimulus. So man in the garden had fellowship. Man in the garden had freedom. And there came a time when man exercised his own free will. And he pushed God to the outer edges of his life and paradise was lost. And man became a rebel creation. You see, Adam's one act plunged the whole human race into a state of distance from God. And today we see him at odds with God and at odds with his fellow man. He looks back over his shoulder and he points to his progress. And in spite of his fallen state, he is no longer man in the garden, but now he is man in the space age. He is man in the 21st century. And it is God, it is science that has become his God. And one world scientist has said the world picture of the nuclear age does not include God. The cultivated man of today does not find God in his nuclear reactor. God is not among the rushing electrons. He's not visible, they say, in outer space. Well, I guess it's true that science has made great strides. When we look at the field of medicine, we have the exciting use of the laser beam, which can mend the tissue of an eye and help a person function normally again. And then there is the world of computers. Pastor O'Bannon was telling you that I had the privilege of serving at the Adventist Media Center for some 31 years. And toward the end of my tenure, I marveled at young people that came to the center to work fresh out of college. And it was amazing to me what they were able to do with computers. They came with a language all their own. They came talking about megapixels no idea what they meant. One day they said, all of the programs that you have done are analog programs. We have to take all of these programs and dump them into the digital domain. I was talking with two of them one day and they said, Pastor, what was it like in the old days? <laughs> Imagine them asking me that. What was it like when you came to work here? And I started trying to describe certain things to them and I was talking to them about how we used to mimeograph. You all remember that? Remember that big drum and you'd get, you'd get ink all over your fingers just to make 10 or 12 copies, no Xerox machine, no copy machine. And I was describing all of that to them and I watched their eyes glaze over. <laughs> had no idea what I was talking about, but I mentioned one word that confounded them. I talked to them about a typewriter. <laughs> Come on now. You remember the days of Pica and Elite? 
and you had to pound the keys and then eventually somebody made an electric typewriter and we went to the office singing praise God from whom all blessings flow. You remember that? They wanted to know what was it like. I marvel at little children, third and fourth grade, teaching their mothers and grandfathers and grandmothers how to use a computer. So science has indeed made giant strides. And then think, if you will, of the world of heart transplants. Like the man written about in the newspaper not so long ago, it talked about a new spinal column for Roscoe J. Withers, the 23rd. Now obviously, obviously this was fiction because it was on his 812th birthday. And the article said he had had 56 transport, transplants. Here's a breakdown of his parts. He had nine hearts, 17 kidneys, four spinal columns, 16 livers, eight brains, and two ears. And old Roscoe sat down one day and said, you know, I hardly know who I am anymore. <laughs> and that may be like modern man if we continue with this kind of progress. And then there is man in outer space, man on the moon. Just think of man whirling about through outer space, challenging the galaxies. It was Richard Nixon who said the placing of man on the moon was the greatest event of all time. And with that one statement, he swept the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord under the rug forever, so he thought. Because you see, man loves to be at the center of everything. Frank Borman, when he returned from Apollo 9, had this to say. He said, I now believe, from a technical point of view, I now believe that man can do anything. And that may be true. But the question we must ask ourselves is this. If we have the technical ability to do it, do we have the spiritual ability to match it? That is the question. On the other hand, Walter F. Burke, the general manager of Project Gemini, says man will never conquer all of outer space. He says, just consider for a moment the distance to the nearest star. Then he reminds us, if you began traveling at half a million miles per hour at the time of Christ's birth, you still would not have arrived there by today. No wonder the psalmist asked, what is mere man that you are concerned about him. Surely, dear ones, God has done as our text says. He has given man dominion over all things and created within his breast a quest for knowledge. And man has indeed come of age. Well, modern man through science has certainly changed nature, but he's been unable to change human nature. When Sir Winston Churchill won the Nobel Peace Prize, he said, we've learned to control everything except man. So man, in having dominion over the world, thinks that he now has the right to destroy the world. And yet most of today's intellectuals are honestly seeking some real and lasting answer to the problems of life. 
They want to know if there are any lasting answers to today's social evils. And they're often looking in their own lives in the midst of political fusion and the threat of world annihilation. And it may be that there's someone here today looking for that. How do we find peace in this world? People today are still asking themselves, how can Jesus Christ, who died 1900 years ago, have any relevance in the 21st century? How can I find lasting peace in the center of my mind? If man has indeed come of age, why does he use his skill to save life and at the same time destroy others in war? If he has come of age, why does he seek a cure for cancer and at the same time have a willingness to use the nuclear bomb? And what does it prove about a man if he can break the sound barrier, but he's unable to break across the line of racial hatred and touch the hand of his fellow man? Sometimes we forget that technology has given us both the power to explore the heavens and to destroy the world. We're living in a time when we can enslave millions and at the same time save millions who are enslaved. You see, beloved, a man can hate and he can lust and cheat just as much traveling in a supersonic jet at 700 miles an hour as he could traveling in a horse and buggy at 10 miles an hour. For man was made for love. And yet left alone, he is unloving. He was made for compassion and let left alone, he will pull the wings from a fly to entertain himself. How is it that man is unable to unlock the problems of the human heart? History tells us some of the worst wars in history have been fought by educated nations. General Omar Bradley was right when he said, modern man is a nuclear giant and at the same time an ethical infant. Man may fly through space and the galaxies, but he's out of touch with his God. He's like a cosmic orphan fly, floating about, flying about in space, out of touch with the infinite. He's lost. He is away from his creator. Oh, but the good news. The good news of the gospel does not focus on the fact that a man is lost, but on the fact that he can be found. What do you say? Let's look again at Hebrews 9. Hebrews 2, I'm sorry, and verse 9. Hebrews 2 and verse 9. Hebrews 2, verse 9. There the Bible says, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. And this is what the heart of the gospel, beloved, is all about. It is Jesus Christ tasting death for you and for me. He has entered the stream of human history for one purpose, and that purpose is that he might bring bright life to you with a capital L. The Bible says, I am come that you may have life and that you might have it more abundantly. 
You see, he came to bring man in the 21st century back to man and the creator. And he knew when he came that it would cost him his life. And he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Jesus Christ wants to provide pardon for your past and peace for your future. But you must open your life to him. You must be willing to receive him as your Lord and as your Savior. For life is not complete until you rest in the God who created you. You can open your heart and give your life to him today. You may have come here today with all kinds of circumstances, but you can go from this service today forgiven, clean, and free. Today you can surrender your will to the Lord of the universe and though you may be a part of man in the 21st century, today you can become a man or woman, boy or girl in the creator and fulfill the very purpose for which you were created. The year was 1923. And a very important meeting was held at Edgewater Beach in Chicago. Attending this meeting was some of the world's most successful financiers. There was Charles Schwab, president of a large steel company. There was Samuel Ingsoll, president of a large gas company. Howard Hobson was there. He was president of a large utility company. Arthur Cotton, called the great wheat speculator, Richard Whitney was there, president of the New York Stock Exchange. Also present was Albert Fall, who was a member of the president's cabinet. Leon Frazier was a bank president. Jesse Livermore, called the great bear on Wall Street. And Ivor Kruger, who was the head of a great monopoly. They had all gathered together. They had it all materialistically. They reached the top of their financial mountain and they met to discuss how they could make more money. I'm with you. I've been watching the news like you. Would you tell me how you can intelligently spend $18 million as a bonus? How do, how do you do it? What what what? What do you do with that kind of money? I remember hearing about George Eastman Kodak, young Scandinavian boy. Next time you pick up a Kodak camera or you get some Kodak film, he was the one that invented all of that. And when he came to America to do his work, he had tremendous success. He built a home in Rochester, New York. It had 56 rooms in it. What do you do with a house with 56 rooms except get lost? What do you do with it? One day he went to a board meeting for his company. He was distraught over his poor health. He came out and put a gun to his head and ended his life. But getting back to the illustration we're using here, these men met together to discuss how to make more money. 
<clears throat> 25 years later, Charles Schwab died. When he did, he was bankrupt. Samuel Ingsoll died a fugitive, running from justice. Howard Hobson was insane. Arthur Cotton died insolvent. Richard Whitney spent time in prison. Albert Fall was pardoned so he could die at home. Jesse Livermore, Ivor Kruger, and Leon Fraser had all died by suicide. You see, these men had learned the art of making a living, but they never learned how to live. And that is why Christ has come, to teach us how to live, to give us direction, meaning, and purpose in our lives, to live his life through us. For you see, we find ourselves, beloved, when we find ourselves in Christ. My final text, Hebrews 2. And this time we're looking at verses 17 and 18. Hebrews 2, 17 and 18. The Bible says, wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted succor them. That's a word that we don't encounter every day. I was aroused by that word and decided to look it up. It means to help. It means to relieve, to comfort, to aid. It means to support. So the hymn writer says to us, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. And when before the throne I stand in him complete, I'll lay my trophies down, all down at Jesus' feet. Why? Because Jesus paid it all. All to him we owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. This has not been an exercise in fun this morning. I don't believe anyone is here by accident. I believe you have come here today because God would have it that way. And therefore, we would be remiss if we did not give to someone the opportunity to make their calling and election sure this day. 